Jess, thank you very much for that worship. Over the last 15 days uh, or so, the local, well, 15 days, the local news, the U.S. news, and the world news uh, have been focused on one main issue that we are witnessing in our world, and it's not uh, climate change. Uh, it's not social issues that we've been dealing with for quite some time, and it's, it's not even the Russian-Ukraine conflict that we've all been uh, experiencing and, and really watching and watching our tax dollars get sent over there. Uh, but what's been in the news locally and U.S.-wide and then worldwide has been the conflict between Hamas and Israel. And, uh, you know, Hamas is a, a terrorist organization that, uh, on most accounts, the, the U.N. doesn't recognize them as a terrorist organization, nor do they recognize Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, but uh, most countries and most uh, groups recognize Hamas as a terrorist organization, they sent rocket, rockets on October 7th uh, to Israel. And for the first time in 50 years, Israel declared war. And um, because Israel is where Jesus was crucified, because Israel is where the church was started, and because uh, Jesus will return there, uh, most religious thinking people have started to look at the conflict that's happening over there and, and started to make it something that's on the forefront of their their brain, and they're looking at the importance of these most recent occurrences. And in my own curiosity, I began to study up on the Middle East and land that is under attack, and so I have to tell you, it's only been a couple weeks that I've been really reading and studying and thinking and asking people about this. I've watched videos, I've read articles, and I've spoke to a few people that I really respect when it comes to theology and eschatology, which is the million-dollar word for the study of end times, uh, as well as the Word of God. And... Recently, our family uh, had dinner with some friends earlier this week, and on October 7th, they flew across nine time zones from Newark, Newark, New Jersey, and they flew across nine time zones, and they landed in Israel at 10 a.m., uh, uh, 11 a.m., 10 a.m., but it was a few hours after the bombing or the rockets had started, and so they're landing, they're coming into Tel Aviv, and the pilot gets on the, the speaker and he says, hey, you're welcome to Jerusalem or welcome to Tel Aviv. And we are flying at 10,000 feet. We're ready to descend. And I'm on the phone right now with the Army of Defense for the Nation of Israel. So hang tight when we land. And everybody's kind of looking around. He's sort of like, what in the world? And as soon as they land, it's bing, 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 bing. Text messages are going off. So they get on the Internet and they, rec and they see that they just landed in a country that's under attack by a terrorist organization. So over the next two days, as they were kind of going to their hotel where they were staying at, they couldn't fly out. They were looking for flights. Uh, they're walking around the old city of Jerusalem, and they, they had the opportunity to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. They walked on the path that Jesus walked, uh, carrying the cross. They went to Golgotha, and they went into the supposed empty tomb as a family of four. And usually when you go on those tours, it's in, in and out in two seconds. Well, they went in, and they were in there for several minutes and got a picture with the four of them in the tomb. And uh, to, to say that that was a faith-building experience as they went in there is an understatement because they're thinking, what if one of these rockets happens to hit the hotel that we're staying at or the place where we're walking? So... Uh, I want to do a quick brief overview of what's being reported, and this is not a political sermon. 
but it is a sermon that I think we all need to pay attention to and start focusing on what's happening over there. So a brief overview of what's being reported, what we know about the war is maybe this is a little bit of a history lesson, maybe it's a, a, a religious political lesson, I don't know, but uh, the word Hamas in Arabic, Aramaic means zeal and strength, and I've uh, read that in Hebrew it means violence. And um, it is a group of Sunni Muslims that was created back in 1987 by a sheikh named Ahmad uh, Yassin, who was a Palestinian cleric. And he, uh, the group is an offshoot of the Egyptian-based uh, Muslim Brotherhood. And Israel, as we know, is a group of people that have occupied that region uh, for over 2,500 years. And Palestine is the area which is outside of Israel. So you have the, if you have Israel, you know, like this, and up here you have uh, the West Bank, and then down here you have the Gaza Strip. And, and Israel is in between the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And the location where the bombs started is a group of about 1,500 Palestinian uh, Hamas members they, they breached the security border wall that was built by Israel on the, the line of Gaza, and they breached the wall, and there is a, a small area, a town, um, and there was a music festival going there, and it was in Elim, and the 1,500 or so uh, Hamas members came in, and they killed 260 innocent uh, you know, partygoers. They were at a music festival, and, and then... And from there, they just kind of filtered their way through, and they went to these places called kibbutz. And a kibbutz or a kibbutz is a small section of town that, that holds, it's like a community. It holds to 100 to 1,000 people, and there's these communities that they are centered around these community gardens, and they were going from kibbutz to kibbutz, and they were killing uh, these innocent Jewish people. And there's some really sad videos and stories that you can see, and and one of them was a, a young family that uh, was in a kibbutz, and, and they heard the, the Hamas coming, and so they put their under one-year-old or one-year-old twins uh, behind a, a hiding wall within the kibbutz, and they came out and confronted the, uh, the, the terrorist, and both of the husband and wife were killed. And so these, these twin orphans now are in there for 14 hours, approximately, before the Israeli army came and and got them. If your heart strings are not being pulled right now, you have no heart. I want you to think about that if it was just in our country and these terrorists came in and, and, and did this to these innocent people. So uh, the question obviously is asked why? Why would uh, the Palestinians believe that the Jews were foreigners in the land? Because they believe that it's their rightful place, that the Hamas, the Palestinians believe that Israel is their rightful place to live, to be. And so they consider Israel, uh, the Jewish people, kind of foreigners or uh, what do you call them, squatters here? <laughs> they, they consider them squatters in Israel. And Hamas believes that, that they are the rightful inhabitants of this land. And in this Hamas covenant, which was established back in 1988, the opening paragraph of this Hamas covenant is, quote, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. And then another uh, section of that Hamas covenant in Article 7 is the day of judgment would not come until the Muslim fight and kill the Jews. So in 1997, Hamas labeled a terrorist organization by the U.S. and dozens of other countries. So back, you know, what is that, 50 or 40-something years ago, 30-something years ago, 
Hamas was labeled as a terrorist organization by the U.S. as well as many other countries. And then in 2005, Israel evacuated Gaza, and Palestine, um, or uh, Hamas took over Gaza in 2006 through uh, uh, an election. And then fast forward to 2023, Hamas breaks through the Israeli line of defense and goes into Israel and sends rockets and kills a lot of innocent people. Now, that's kind of my understanding so far of what's happened over the last 15 days. Is very, you know, the, the what happened, the rockets, the 1,500 or so assailants that came in in parachutes and paragliders and motorcycles, and, and then they attacked Israel. Uh, and uh, why they did it was they don't believe Israel belongs in that land. They believe it belongs to them. And so I, I started looking, the more I, I dug into this, you know, it, it forget the biblical perspective if you're a secular person, but we need to remember the biblical perspective if we are a, a Bible-believing Christian person. And when you look at the history of Palestine and how it came to be, from my understanding and what I've read, in around 135 A.D., the Israelites were under Roman rule, and they began to create this uh, uprising to get some of their freedoms back. And the Roman emperor Hadrian uh, squashed the uprising. And in order to really kind of thumb the nose at the Jews at that point, he renamed the land Palestine, which comes from the Latin word Palestina, which means Philistine. The Philistines and the Israelites were extremely opposed to each other. Anybody ever heard the story of David and Goliath? This is why this is so interesting. The stories that we read in the Old Testament and we see the history of it, we can understand a little bit more as we continue to learn what's happened over the last two or three, 2,000 years. So the Philistines were enemies of Israel, and so they named it Palestina, and the uh, Roman emperor named it that. And uh, ever since then, the Palestinians have felt that the Jews were not uh, occupying a land that was rightfully there. So I want to go to a biblical perspective to understand a little bit when we talk about the Philistines and the Roman emperors. And we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And the reason this is important is because this does affect you and this does affect what your decision is going to be today, tomorrow, or a year from now, or seven or ten years from now. This does matter to you. Okay. So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abram. And he, he comes up to Abram, and he says to him in Genesis 12, I don't have notes today, guys. I wanted to just not have you looking at them, but rather looking at the Word. And if you want notes, you can take a picture of this, these Bible verses that we're going to read. But it's Genesis 12, verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kin and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And you and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to be blessed among all the peoples, and all families will come for you will be blessed. And then if you fast forward to Genesis 15, starting in verse 17, this whole story from Genesis 12 all the way to Genesis 25 is really interesting, obviously, but if you, I'm just going to cherry pick the ones to establish what I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make. So in Genesis chapter 15, verse 17, it says, "When the sun had gone down and it was dark." So we have before this, Abraham rescues, uh, rescues Lot. Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek. God makes a covenant with Abraham, 
And then in 17, Genesis 15, 17, it says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephirim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Okay, there's a lot of ites there, but that's about 300,000 square miles. If you look at the overall topography or the geography of what God said to Abraham that you are going to get this land, it's around 300,000 square miles. Currently, does anybody know what the square miles is of the recognizable nation of Israel? The size of New Jersey, okay. Yes, in square miles, it's around 8,019, I think. 8,019 square miles. So the land geography that God said to Abraham, you're going to, why is Abraham in Israel? We're going to come to that in a minute. But 300,000 square miles is the biblical portion that God said to Abraham, we're going to give you. I'm going to give you. And currently it's around 8,019 square miles. Now, if we go over to Genesis 16, we see how is Abraham going to have all of these descendants that's talked about if he doesn't have a wife and some children. So he ends up saying to, in Genesis 16, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found, talking about Hagar, because Sarah had, had not been happy with Hagar, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar... Servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? And Hagar said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. Now remember, Sarah couldn't have children and so... Sarah went to Hagar, her maidservant, and said, hey, why don't you have a son or a child with my husband because I can't. And so Abraham said, okay, whatever you say, Sarah. So they had a child. And that child, she is pregnant with, with uh, a son. And Hagar is a slave woman. Okay, she is a servant of Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said, uh, submit to her. Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So Sarah gives his, her mistress to Abraham, and they have a child, and that child's name is Ishmael. Okay? We track him? Abraham. You have Abraham and Sarah. And Hagar, Sarah can't have kids, so she says, here, take my maidservant. And the maidservant has a child and calls him Ishmael. Now we go to Genesis, uh, we have the covenant of circumcision. And then we go to Genesis 18 and verse 10. In 18 verse 10, it says, uh, let's start in 9. They said to him, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. 
And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed at herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. I was listening. So this angel says to Sarah, these visitors say to Sarah and Abraham, or says to Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah. And Sarah's like, I'm 90 years old. How can I have a son? After all this time, you're going to now give me the pleasure of, of bearing children? And he says, yeah. So they have a son. And that son's name is Isaac. We know that we know the story of Abraham has a, wife with, uh, has, a, has a wife named Sarah and has a son named Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebecca have a son named Jacob. And Jacob has how many sons with his wives? Twelve. The twelve tribes of Israel. Very good. So you have Jacob who's also, his name is Israel. So Israel, Jacob are the same people. They have twelve sons. So that's why Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are so important. So Abraham has this son with his wife, and uh, it's Isaac. Now, Isaac and Ishmael are brothers, but Sarah and Hagar are not friends. And so they say, you got to leave. Sarah says, you got you to get out of here. So in Genesis 25, let's go to Genesis 25, starting in verse 12. We're establishing the Ishmaelites, okay? You have the Jews that come from the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then you have the Ishmaelites that come from Abraham and Hagar, and then Ishmael, and then his, his, his kin. So in Genesis 25, verse 12, it says, These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in order of their birth. And then he gives a bunch of names. And then in verse 16, these are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, 12 princes according to their tribes. These are the, their, uh, these are the years of the life of Ishmael. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Verse 18, Genesis 25, 18 says, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria, he settled over against all his kinsmen. There's this picture that Ishmael and his descendants would always be butting heads with humanity. Always. Go to the 83rd Psalm. In the 83rd Psalm, I'm going to read the 83rd Psalm through the first eight verses. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. This is the 83rd Psalm. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they, who? 
the ones that want Israel to be no more. For they conspire with one accord against you, they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also has joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. The 83rd Psalm says the Ishmaelites want to have Israel around no more. This is all biblically historical. This is secularly historical. This has been going on since Genesis, since Abraham. So I read these stories and, and, and this, to me, this interesting and fascinating situations that we deal with in today's culture, in 2,000 years ago, in 4,000 years ago, when we read this stuff, and it, 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 it makes me wonder some pretty... Uh, that's not even the right sentence, but I'm going to say it anyway. Like, these really big stuff, man. I mean, <laughs> it makes me think of, of what's going on now is bigger than just another little conflict. It's just another, maybe this is bigger than just another little war that we're seeing because there's time for war and a time for peace. Maybe there's more to the picture than what we're seeing. So after digging into this conflict, I, I was reading and studying and, you know, looking at end time stuff and talking to people that are into that and, you know, post-trib and pre-trib and pre-millennial and post-millennial and all these million dollar words about end times. And I'm like, whoo, there's a lot here. So I reached out to someone that I very, very much respect of his Bible knowledge. He's 83 years old. And I said, hey, what's your take on what's going on over there? And he said, not much different than what happened uh, when Hiroshima happened or World War I or World War II or the Six-Day War back in the... Four I mean, not much different. It's all... We're seeing it time and time again. Israel's in conflict with Palestine, and Palestine's in conflict with Israel, and people are getting involved, people are not getting involved. And he goes, to be honest with you, Nate, Galatians chapter 3 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus, and you become Abraham's seed. So I just don't, I, I don't think a whole lot about it that a lot of people are saying this is the end time stuff. I, I don't really think it is. And so he has a phone call. This gentleman, very, very, very close friend of ours, one of our other friends calls him and says, hey, what's your take on Israel and Palestine? Yeah, that's funny. Nate just called me, and this is what I told him. And this friend of mine who's a nuclear physicist, so he's kind of smart, he said, well, I don't agree with you. I think there's a lot more going on right now than just there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. I think this is a very big deal what's happening. And so he said, uh, he sends me a message, said, hey, I just talked to Hollis, and he said, this is what he told you, I don't agree with him. If you want to have a conversation about it, I would love to talk. So I called Michael up right away, and I said, Michael, what are you doing tomorrow? He goes, I get off at 2.30. I said, will you come by the office so we can talk? I want to get your take on this, what's going on in Palestine. He said, sure. So he comes to the office, and this guy is brilliant. He starts going over the, the, the Accord, the Ottoman Empire, the Roman Empire. He starts going over the British rule. I mean, he's going over the history of Israel, the history of Palestine, and it's way over my head, but I'm, I'm taking it as much as I can. 
And he's talking about the five red heifers. There's an article that I just found, and it's, uh, it was found in the Jerusalem Post last September, and it says, five perfectly red heifers required for ritual purification of those who have touched a dead body arrived in Israel from a ranch in Texas on Thursday as the Temple Institute continues preparations to lay the ground for the construction of the third temple in Jerusalem. The heifers are all under one year old, and if they remain 100% red and avoid any blemishes which would disqualify them, they will each be eligible to be used to create the ashes required by Jewish law to purify those who have been in contact with a dead body, explained the Temple Institute on Monday. This level of purification would, need, would be needed in order to allow the Kohanim priests to carry out their work in a future temple. So my buddy Michael's telling me they just sent some red heifers from Texas over to Israel and they need to be perfectly unblemished heifers to build the altar for the sacrificial system required when they build the third temple because the other one was destroyed. And so all of these prophecies, he's saying, are being fulfilled. And he's talking about the, the World Economic Forum is going to meet in 2024. And, and he said there's 120 Jewish scholars that are studying end times and saying in 2030... The seven-year tribulation will, tribulation will come to a close. The seven scrolls that are described in the book of Revelation, the seven churches that are described in the book of Revelation, all that's going to come to fruition. He says, but that's just my opinion. And he's, I mean, he's got some, some pretty uh, uh, convincing arguments for that. So I'm, I'm listening to him, and I'm listening to my, my, my mentor, you know, one of my mentors, and I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, and then I get an email about, Five hours later, and I click on the link, and it's a sermon by a guy uh, named Gary Hamrick, and he's a preacher at this church called Cornerstone something in California. I don't remember the name of the church. It's called Cornerstone, and it's a 46-minute sermon, and he goes through the, the, the historical and the biblical facts, and he starts talking about Ezekiel 38, and he said, Ezekiel 38, you've got Gog and Magog, and that's actually the name for Russia, and that when Russia and Iran come together, which we're funding Iran to fund Hamas. Think about that. But when Russia and Iran come together and they come down against Israel, it says Israel will have nobody to defend them. And right now the U.S. is helping out Israel and standing with Israel. But he goes, what's going to happen is, you know, he says, if this happens, be on your guard. If this, if this happens, we have all these open borders right now. And if these cells of people that are coming in the open border create havoc in America in the next 12 months. This guy's not some crazy preacher. I mean, he's very articulate. He's, he's using biblical, you know, he's using scriptures, and he says, when these cells start war, our president is going to call Netanyahu and say, hey, sorry, we have to pull our troops from Israel. We can't be there to help you anymore, and Israel will be on their own. But it does say they will be attacked from the north. So if Russia and Iran and China come together and they go against Israel, that's them coming in from the north, and Israel is in this very vulnerable position between the Gaza and the, the, the West Bank, and he goes, you might want to start paying attention if that happens. If it doesn't happen, it's not the end times, because it does say they're going to come in from the north. So if we stay over there and we help them, and Israel has support, they're not standing alone. You can imagine my brain as I'm reading this, trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. Are we, are, we at, are we getting to the end? Are we seven years away from the trumpet? 
Think about that. Are we seven years away? I've got an 18-year-old son. I can remember the day he was born. And it seemed like yesterday. I've got a nine-year-old. I can remember the day he was born. It seemed like yesterday. Seven years like that. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is, is foretelling about the destruction of the temple. And as I'm, as I'm wondering if we have seven years left, we have Michael Marks' take, and we have Gary Hamrick's take, and we have my friend Hollis's take. And here's my take. I don't know. I can't, I can't take their opinion and turn it into my opinion. I can't do that in good conscience. I can't listen to a guy on stage preaching who, who maybe is a very good speaker and very convincing and go, yep, that's what I believe. I can't do that in good conscience. I have, to, I have to look at it for myself and understand it and pray about it and go, okay, God, what are you trying to say here? When is the end? And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, I'm in 25, sorry, now I'm in the right passage. But concerning this day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. No one knows. We can say this is the day. We can say it's 2030. We can say with the World Economic Forum is going to happen January in Davos, and it's, uh, I think, January, February in Davos, and they're going to come up with this one world currency, and that's one other step going into the direction of the end times. But no one knows the day or the hour. We can't say like Nostradamus said, or uh, who was it, Jake, that said in 2080, can you remind me of his name? Isaac Newton did some things because he's smart, and he said 2080 is when it's going to happen. Nobody knows the day or hour. But what if? Like, what if? This is what I was challenged the high school kids with on, on Wednesday at our study. What if seven years from now? What if? I mean, because we know it's going to happen. If we believe the Word of God, we believe it's going to happen. There's going to be tribulation. There's going to be, there's going to be wars. There's going to be persecution. And there's going to be a redemption of God's people. And what if seven years from now, in 2030, that's the time God has said? In Matthew 24, 42... Therefore, stay awake. This was right after he said, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, 
for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But you know this, or but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not left his house, not let his house be broken into. Justin, I'm going to call you out in a good way. Justin had a, a, a bighorn sheet tag. How long have you tried to draw that? 16 years of putting in points for the coveted bighorn sheep in Colorado. He drove six hours or four hours to get to Pagosa, near Pagosa Springs. He hiked, how many miles did you hike in 30 days? A lot. Maybe over 100? Pretty close to 100 miles, okay? And not like walking from here to downtown. I mean, it's like this. That's where those critters hang out. So he puts in this tag, this coveted tag. He draws the tag. And what kind of rifle were you using? 300? Okay. 300 what? Rum? 300 rum. He's got this rifle sitting in his closet in the case. And he says, man, this 16-point tag, I can't wait I can't wait to see that ram 350 yards away. Poof! I can't wait. If you're an anti-hunter, sorry, this is what we do here. Poof! I can't wait. And then he leaves the gun in the closet and never sights it in. And then he hikes the 30 days. He gets up there and he says, Lord, let the bullet be true. Would any real hunter do that? Not a chance. How many rounds did you put through that gun, Justin? 180 rounds before he pulled the trigger on a coveted ram. It says, be ready. We drew a tag, guys. We drew a tag. Jesus, we drew a tag. And be honest with yourselves, because it doesn't matter what I think or what your wife thinks. Or it matters what you think. Are you sighting in your rifle? Are you prepared? Only you know if you're prepared. I don't mean to be mean, but it would be foolish had Justin gone on that hunt and not put a single round through that rifle been about a waste of 16 points. When I was a teenager, I was not a Christian. And uh, my mom and stepdad used to go out of town quite a bit when I was in high school. And I always got the letter laid down to me. No parties, no friends over, keep the house clean. Rear view mirror. There, there I come there waving. You know, I got my Bible in my hand. <laughs> I'm going to read my Bible for the next two days, mom and dad. They leave. I get on the phone. Guess what? They left. And you get a big party at the house. Wake up Saturday morning. I look around, and the yard is destroyed. There's trash all over the place. There's little red cups that I don't know why Americans do that. And it's all over the house. It's trash. Few people stayed the night. Friends stayed the night. 
And they leave because I got to go home. And a couple of my buddies are like, we'll help you clean up. You know, maybe one or two of my buddies help clean up. And that house, man, I'm telling you, I knew my mom and stepdad were going to be home around 5 o'clock. I knew it because they said, we're coming from where, Reno or whatever. We're driving the conference, and we'll be back around 5. Okay, so I'll get up at 10 o'clock in the morning or 9 o'clock or 8, whatever it was, and I clean that house. And it, they come back, and it is the cleanest that house had ever been. And like, we're so proud of you, son. Look how, you really care about this family. Look how clean this house is. We're so proud of you to obey the rules and on and on. Because I knew they were coming back. Now, there was a piece of incriminating evidence that I got caught with. They found out I was lying, which that's a whole other sermon. I'm not even going to go there. You can't hide from God. Uh, I thought I could hide from my parents, but you can't hide from God. And so I cleaned the house. But in Matthew 24... Not very well. No, <laughs> no, that's right. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? Matthew 24, 45. Whom his master has set over his household to give him their food at the proper time. Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's not an easy verse to read, but it's in there. We oftentimes want to avoid that verse because it can be challenging. And we think, how could a loving God do that. Put somebody in pieces, cut them to pieces, and put them with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the underlying message in the story is you know it's coming. You know it's coming. So be ready. It's a choice. Be ready. Sight your rifle in. Go work on it. Go practice. Get better at what you need to get better at. Worry less. Worry less. Have more faith. Be more obedient. Honor your lives to God. I mean, that's what we're seeing here is God saying, be ready because you don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know. I'm telling you, these signs, these signs that I'm seeing, I don't know the date, but I can tell you, they have had my brain going in circles for the last week. When I really start thinking and reading, I'm going, what is really important? I've got plenty to be stressed out to the max about right now. Plenty. And my brain is going, but does it really matter? Like, what is the number one thing that matters in our lives? Him. That's the number one thing. And we get so caught up in all the other things. They're distractions. And so, I don't know, but I do lean towards this belief. Hiroshima, World War I, World War II, Hitler, Mussolini, all of the signs and things that people in every generation have said, the end is near, the end is near, the end is near, persecution of Jews, the end is near. 
Every one of those are God going, wake up, wake up, wake up. I'm coming back. I'm coming home. I'm coming back. Be ready. Light your lantern. That's what it's saying. When it's going to happen, your guess is as good as mine. But it's going to happen. I hope that the foolishness of what I just said is, is convicting to you as it has been to me over the last week reading and thinking about this stuff. That's my hope. Who has communion this morning? Brian, right on.